Today I'm talking with Clive Elliott KC about the role that good advocacy plays in access to justice and the importance of advocates who follow the rules. I've been a lawyer my whole life, and uh, but I've been quite specialised in the sense I've, be, I've worked in the IP area, but um, as, as a litigator. Um, so I do understand the 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 way that that disputes play out, and you know some some of the issues there. And I was also a president of the bar association, and we had um, at the time we had a, an access to justice committee that I chaired. And actually, the current chief justice was on it, but before she became chief justice. So it was, and and we had academics on there and lawyers. So it was actually quite a useful committee. But I'm not sure that we achieved a great deal. And and one of the problems with access to justice is it's such a it's it's such a big problem. It's such a it's a sort of moving feast. And you you think you've solved one part of it, and then it pops up somewhere else. And um, so it's. It's something I think you've just got to keep working at, and I think it has to be done across uh, across disciplines. You, you know, it, it, you can't just get the the bar association or lawyers or judges trying to solve it. It has to be done, you know, community wide. Yes, and no, I think you're right about that. And I think one of the temptations often is to point the finger at lawyers for being too expensive and therefore too inaccessible. Yeah. Um, and one of the answers that gets promulgated is, well, perhaps if we just make it easier for people to participate and we remove the need for lawyers, that that will somehow solve the problem. But I think sometimes that under, underestimates the value that lawyers have. What would you say is really the essence of the role of a lawyer in a, a litigation-type matter? Well, I think the, our role is critical because we essentially are the gatekeepers between, between the public and, and the courts or the, the adjudication process. You know, we, we mediate between, between the public and the people who decide those, those cases. And so I think we've got a critical role because we have to really explain um, the situation to, to clients and and also give them advice as to whether it's worth pursuing a particular claim or it's it's better to just move on. And, and a lot of my advice is actually designed to actually avoid conflict, is to say, is this a fight you really need? Is it, is it important to you? And, and have you looked at the, at the cost benefit of it? You know, and often I gave a talk just a few weeks ago and I spoke about the Streisand effect, which is, you know, a famous case. And it, it was a complete disaster for Barbara Streisand, who loves her privacy, and say, well, look, that was a stupid move to make, and I'm sure she won't do it again. Yeah, I give that, uh, I give that same advice to every client who brings the word defamation in with them, because it's the exact same thing. There's no faster way than leading, um, of making people aware of what's been said about you than suing someone about it. So I think we've got a critical role, and, um, and I think that, um, you know, we have to take it seriously, but, but I think we need help. We can't do it on our own. So t- taking one of the words you used there, you describe lawyers as sometimes the gatekeepers here. And I guess part of the criticism that is sometimes raised is that it's lawyers who are closing the gates on justice. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. But but why do you think that that gatekeeping role is important as a part of a functioning system of justice? It's important in the sense that lay people don't understand the way the legal system works and there's no way they, they could be expected to. They need to get advice from good professionals who who actually are doing things for the right reasons, and that's why I'm I'm very old-fashioned when I look at the legal profession because I call it a profession; it's not a business. And I think that unfortunately it has become a commodity to to some extent, and we all have to make make a dollar one way or another. 
But I think at the end of the day, we, we are professionals. And I still remember the day that I got admitted many years ago. And Justice Jeffries was the, the judge presiding. And he said, you, you were joining a noble and, and learned profession. And th- those were very quaint words back then. But they, they're true. I think, and I, I've, I've always believed in them that, that we are a noble profession. And we shouldn't forget that. I think for a lot of lawyers, the word profession is one of those things that we say without really understanding. How would you describe the difference between being a profession and being a business? We have wider obligations. It means we have ethical ethical obligations. And we also have obligations to uphold the profession that we belong to. And, and that means that we have to devote time to actually making sure that the profession is strong. And, and that's the difference. A business doesn't have those obligations. You don't have to belong to the Chamber of Commerce. You, you can, you can choose to do so. And, and most businesses do for commercial reasons. Whereas the work that I do, the, the, the pro bono work and, and work for bar associations and the like is because I actually believe that the profession needs people like you and I to actually provide our time. What do you see as being the risk of having advocates who don't have those obligations and don't have those other considerations going on? Well, I think the risk is that there is clearly a a, a justice gap. People can't all afford or all people can't afford lawyers. There's no doubt about that. But I don't think having unregulated operators in that gap is the solution. I think that the way that they operate is quite different to the way that we operate. And I prefer our model because it has ethical obligations. I'm not maligning employment advocates as a group, but I think that they operate at a different level to us and they have a different creed. Drawing on that idea of the difference between lawyers and unregulated advocates, what's at the heart of what lawyers add to the equation? What we add is is ethical responsibility and professionalism. And I'm assuming that the, the lawyer knows what they're doing, you know, so that they've got the goods in terms of knowing the law and, and knowing how to resolve issues. But it's that, it's that ethical professional overlay that I think is so important because we are constantly faced with conflicts of interest and we have to deal with them and, and not just, not just the way we deal with our clients, but the way we deal with each other. And if we don't have that ethical overlay and it's got to be really infused into into the way you think clients are going to suffer would you say then it's a confusion between the the interests of the advocate and the interests of the client that starts to undermine it where you don't have those professional overlays totally and um particularly if you have some skin in the game and uh, you know if you're there to if, if you're there to take a cut of the of the payout. I should stress that I'm, I'm actually think we need to loosen the shackles on contingency fees because I think that they should, they should be allowed because as long as the law is acting responsibly and ethically, then, then, and, and the client understands what the deal is. I mean, they work perfectly well in the US and I think that that would really alleviate a lot of this justice gap at the bottom end of town. Yeah, because obviously at the moment the rules around contingency fees are quite restrictive and they're prohibitive yeah. in some areas and then on top of that you've got very firm restrictions around uh, around how they're used. Would you say that that is limiting the ability of lawyers to act for people who aren't able to self-fund from the outset? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and this is where the, this is where the, the advocates are, are making their living. By saying, well, we can do that. You know, we, we are legal professionals 
um, you know, we're here to solve problems. We don't have we don't have all the um, you know all the regulation that these lawyers have. We don't charge as much, and uh, if we don't if we don't win, you don't pay a cent. I mean, it's a good it's a good selling point. How do you think you maintain then the independence of lawyers when they do have that skin in the game, when they know that they're um, they're only getting fed if the client succeeds at the end of the day? Well, I think I think it comes down to the it comes down to the integrity of the lawyer at the end of the day, and and as long as the as, as long as the client understands what you know what the ramifications are. It, it works fine in the US. I mean, it's it's well embedded in their system there, and and now some lawyers make massive get massive payouts on big big litigation, but then they put a huge amount of time into it. And I guess then you'd say that the distinction between advocates and lawyers there is that lawyers would remain subject to a an external regulator who can also keep them in check. Yeah, yeah, totally. So they still have the ethical obligations and it would mean they couldn't have a conflict of interest with, with their client. You know, if the, for some reason, I can't, I can't imagine a situation, but there might be situations where a conflict does arise, um, in terms of, well, on, on settlement, for example, you could have a conflict where the client says, I'm happy to settle for X and the, the lawyer says, no, I'm, I'm hanging in there for Y. And then the, 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 the whole thing falls over. So there would be a conflict there. So I'm not sure how that's resolved. I'm not a, I'm not a expert on contingency fee, um, dispute resolution. I'm sure they, I'm sure these situations arise, but I think that's just an example of where, of where, and, and I mean, um, I, I was just looking at, at the report that the Bar Association did in, in 2018. And there was a quote from the, from Justice Wing Kalman who said that the legal profession has to innovate to fill this justice gap. And that was in the Ethel, Ethel Benjamin lecture. And I agree with her completely, but it means that our regulators have to innovate as well. And so, so, and so do the judges. The whole system has to do that. We could look at, at other systems and, and, and borrow from them. So obviously your, your practice has run into employment advocates from time to time. Um, yeah. Can you describe some of the difficulties that you've seen for the clients that you're representing, so the clients who've chosen legal representation, when they're suddenly faced with an advocate on the other side? Well, I think that the, I mean, the difficulties that that I've come across are really just a different approach to things and taking on cases that that don't always have merit, and and really trying trying on when you know when there's no basis to do so and so and and I think that the I think the mindset is well look we'll give it a go and you know if we get a if we get a payout all all good and well if not we'll just we'll just bail out and I think it it creates false expectations and and I think there's no point in pursuing a meritless claim and and I think it's I think it's really just the it, it's the it's an attitudinal issue that that I have a difficulty with, um, and and the the the, the recent um, and and I don't want to talk about the Hulse case um, because I I understand that he's appealed that decision, and so it's probably it's probably not proper for me to discuss it now. But I think um, there there is um, one point that Justice Moore made. Is that is that there is an important distinction in the law, but between um, between fact 
opinion and submission. And that that's a distinction that that, that we learn as lawyers. And um, the, the whole justice system actually revolves around those those concepts. And when people don't understand them and make accusations, I, I had a I had a matter recently, um, which which is confidential and has there's no published judgment on it, but where allegations were made by a lay litigant, which had simply no basis at all. They were just absolutely they were created out of thin air, and. Lay, lay people or untrained um, uh, advisors don't actually understand that you can't simply make allegations without a basis, and you know, and and so it's at that it's at that fundamental level that I think there's a disconnect if if everyone is not um, playing by the same rules, you know, which is why I said in that article in in, in the Herald that you know the, the rules are important, they're there for a reason. And if people don't adhere to them, the system eventually collapses. I think that there's a temptation sometimes for people to to hear that sort of comment and say, well, doesn't that just mean that the team that's prepared not to play by the rules has the advantage because they can do what they want? But do you think that it actually works out that way for clients who have these unrestrained advocates that they end up with the advantage because they're the ones prepared to break the rules? There is there is a potential advantage there, but I think that judges and um, tribunals are actually quite good at at getting to the getting to the truth in the end, and and I think uh, a temporary forensic advantage um, will quickly will quickly um, erode, and and so so I I think I think there's always good reason to play by the rules because. Particularly judges and anyone who has a decision-making power can see if someone is bending the rules. It's not a, it's not a good way to convince. No, and ultimately, then you'd say that even the clients of these people become disadvantaged because they're they're not playing the game that they're going to win. That's right. I mean, because ultimately, the the name of the game is to win. It, it's not to score points and and to you know to beat your chest and 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 for your client to say, oh, I've I've got I've got a you know, I've got a street fighter here. You know, that's that's what I wanted. I, I don't want some git in a gown. <laughs> that's a, a very apt way of putting it. <laughs> For younger people in the profession, I think it probably is more difficult now perhaps than it used to be to have that sense of, of professionalism and to understand the significance of that. What do you think we need to do as a profession to cultivate that culture where rule following isn't just something we do but something that we value? I think it's only it's only through education and support and 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 mentoring, and I think it's only through more senior practitioners, you know, reminding the juniors in the profession as to as to why these rules exist and um, you know why why etiquette's important, and uh, because ultimately it, it comes back to the fact that we are operating in a an antagonistic environment, and. It's very easy to get angry and to lash out at people, but we don't do that because the system would, you know, would disintegrate very quickly and that would become a slanging match. And so, so the rules are there for a reason. But ultimately, I think that, that, that the, the, the reason they are important is that if you, if you know what you're doing and you're in command of your 
your argument and the facts and you understand the tribunal, you can be successful as an advocate for your client. And so, so I think ultimately we have to, we have to say that we do work in an adversarial system and we are, we are there to achieve our client's purpose. If we can do that, if we can do that in a, uh, in a, in a moderate but focused way. And, and one of the lessons that I always learned as a very young advocate was seeing, uh, Justice Galt present. Even when I was very young, he had a formidable reputation in the IP profession. And I went to see him in court one day and I could hardly hear him. He was almost whispering. And I said to one of my colleagues, why doesn't he speak up? I can't, I can't hear him, but the court could hear him. And the mm. court was taking notes very assiduously and they were hanging on every word he said. And it made me realize it's not about being the loudest voice in the room. It's about what you say and, and having the integrity where the court listens to you. And, and th- these are the things that win cases. It's not, it, mm. you know, it's not being a rule breaker and a, you know, and a, and a lad around town where you say, well, I don't care, you know, if I piss that judge off, you know, my clients, you know, my clients like that. <laughs> I think that's a, a great example. I have a very vivid memory of, um, of almost falling asleep in the back of a courtroom and, and fighting to stay awake through some, what seemed to me at the time, very dry advocacy by someone who I now understand to be a very, very good lawyer who recently took silk. So I, I can relate implicitly to what you're saying about <laughs> Justice Gold. Yes, I, I think there's a, a similarity in what you're saying about um, the, the rules of etiquette and in a way the rules of evidence, that the rules of evidence are there to ensure that only the right information goes before the court and the, the information that's proper. And there's a yes. sense that the, the rules you're describing are there to make sure that only the advocacy that is proper goes before yeah. the court for consideration. Yeah, yeah. Well, the rules of evidence and the, and the rules of etiquette work together. Um, I'm, I'm, with everything I'm saying, I'm assuming that the lawyer knows what they're doing and that they understand the Evidence Act because they, those are the forensic tools that we work with every day. Um, but it's these softer skills and, and, um, because we're talking about, you know, ultimately getting access for more people to, to the courts or to dispute resolution. And, and I, so there, there is a wider issue that I did want to raise with you. And that, and that is that one size doesn't fit all. Mm. And at the moment, that is what our justice system is. And there, there are two big issues that I think we need to look at. And that is having, a process that deals with different types of cases, small, medium and large, rather than just saying it's a civil action um, and it either goes into the district court or very few do or the high court. And I think we need to we need to really look at, at our system and we need more specialisation. Attempts have been made to achieve that for many years without success. But I think now we've. We've reached the point where I think our, our, our justice system is is creaking at, at every level. And, and I think people are realising we have to change. One of the suggestions that's been made to address that when we talk about sort of the, the division between small, medium and large cases is to expand the jurisdiction and the reach of the disputes tribunal. What do you think of that suggestion? I think it's a good I think it's a good suggestion. I think there should be there should be three types of cases. And you should go into, into, you should be triaged as soon as you file a proceeding into one of them. And, and I think that the, the, the lowest level is, needs to be quick, quick and nasty. 
and effective. It needs, you need to get in there and get out and, and live with the consequences. You can call it a small claims tribunal or anything else, but I think it needs to be quick and, quick and nasty. The, and it's the, it's the middle, it's the middle category that's the hard one because often mm. those are cases that, that are meritorious, but people can't afford to, to bring the claim. I think it, I think the big end of town is fine because they, they, they are well resourced. They can, they can get good legal advice. It's the middle and, and small category where I think the, the, the justice gap is. And I think that we need to have a system. And I've, I've put forward publicly that, you know, why do we have a district court and a high court? We should have, we should have one court system, but there should be, they should deal with small, medium and large cases, and there should also be a separation be- between criminal and, and civil and specialisation. And I, I think that if, if we were able to grasp that, we could solve this problem that we've got at the moment, which is, which is huge. You know, waiting two years for a trial date in the High Court is, not, is unacceptable. And I, I don't think anyone would defend that. I think everyone accepts it's, a, it's totally unacceptable. But, you know, how do we solve it? What do you think is the, the place of advocates then in those smaller and medium-sized claims? Uh, I mean, that's one of the barriers here is the cost of legal representation. Do you think we do better to do away with lawyers in those contexts, or is there still a real need for professional advocacy in that setting? I would like to think that even at, at the lower tier, a, a small claims-type tribunal, is they should be able to be represented by, by lawyers. Um, but... If, if the lawyers were able to work on a contingency basis, that, that would work well. At the moment, they, lawyers are excluded. Now, I don't think, I don't think we should be excluded, but I think there might, uh, there might be limitations on, you know, on, on how we appear and when we appear. But, uh, you know, a, a blanket ban, I think, is counterproductive. Mm. I think also there's been criticism at times that the current approach to lawyers' negligence and, and the removal of barristerial immunity has meant that lawyers feel there is a need in every case to take a kitchen sink approach, and that leads to yeah. lengthy, expensive, and, and rather overwhelming trials. Yeah. Do you think there's room to play with the levers there to make it easier for lawyers to advocate in a proportionate way in these smaller matters? Yeah, def- definitely. I think there needs to be a recognition that if you're in a, you know, let's just call it a Category 1 case, is that you, you are going to come in there less prepared than a Category 3 case. And and in a Category 2 case, um, I don't think that judges should expect uh, perfection, which they do expect for all cases. Anything that goes before a high court judge, they expect you to be well prepared and, and understandably, but sometimes... You don't have the budget for that. So I think we need to recognise that there are pressures on, on both sides of the, of the equation and lawyers trying to make a living. And, you know, and I think that there's a, there's a perception that lawyers, lawyers make a lot of money, but that, that's simply not true. Some lawyers do. Some lawyers, some lawyers struggle and particularly in the provinces, you know, and, but they are providing critical services to, to their communities. And so we, we, we can't just, you know, that's the one size fits all. You know, you don't get one size of lawyer. You and I are probably on, on different sides of this issue, being it is that I'm a solicitor and you're a barrister. But um, what do you think about the current balance on direct instructions? I mean, I, I don't act on any direct instructions. Uh, I always get in instructions through a solicitor. And even if it means 
a lighter than usual um, touch because I'd, I'd, I've got solicitors that I've dealt with for many years and they, they know the way I work. So if, the, if, the, if, the, if there's a reverse brief in that case, the, the solicitors do have do have oversight of the file, but I'll, I'll do most of the work. So I think I think it works okay. We need to realise is that barristers are, barristers are at, at a serious disadvantage in terms of fee recovery because we cannot sue on our fee, and I think that's I think that's wrong. We've got to go through. We've got to we've got to have a solicitor either with money and trust account or to sue on our behalf, and that puts us at a at a real disadvantage. And probably the only um, the only business people in the country who are in that unique disadvantage, I, I would suggest. Yeah, I mean, it's a, so we've got some archaic rules. Some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. You've but, made a few suggestions during our discussion around possible solutions here, and I think the suggestions about um, categorising cases and and around the role of contingency fees are valuable ones. Is there anything else that you think is sticking out as a sore thumb that the profession should deal with to try and address these issues? Well, I know that the I know that the whole civil justice system is being looked at at the moment, and the, so there is a lot of work being done on that. And I, I know Justice Cook is leading that, and I think that that is excellent. The the bar association did put forward in in 2018 a, a short causes procedure based on on the UK system, and I think that I'd like to see that um, given given more consideration. And basically, you know, for short and medium causes is basically they had a very rigorous process where the the trial would take no more than four days, pleadings no more than 20 pages and judgment delivered in six weeks. But they've done some pretty big cases through through that um, system that requires heavy handed um, management, case management by the judge. So it does require collaboration between the profession and, 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 and ju- 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 judiciary. And that's something I'd really like to see, um, given a, even a, a, even just a pilot, to see how it works, because I think that that is where the, the real justice gap is and at this, at, uh, in, the, in the first category. So I'd like to see the whole small claims tribunal reviewed. And, and I think if, if we just sat down with a, with a blank piece of paper, you know, judges, profession, and, and government, because the government has to be involved in this as well. We could come up with a much better system than we've got. Thank you, Clive, for your ideas around access to justice and how we can make a better system. It's wonderful to hear the thoughts of someone with the experience that you have. And to you, listener, we hope you enjoyed this podcast too. And don't forget to check out our other one. Mm-hmm.